I once had a history teacher for a class called Racism and Anti-Semitism in Canada since 1858. And one of the first exercises the professor asked us to do was to visualize a future without racialization and free of anti-Semitism. She said that if we couldn't visualize our future, we would have a challenging time shaping it. This question inspired me to ask local visionaries across various disciplines, from social justice activists, city planners, and environmentalists, to folks from the technology industry, as well as artists, to share how they see the future territories of the Songhees and Wissanich peoples, also known as Victoria. So we talked to these people. My name is M. Lindsay Delarond. So I'm Paula. I'm Glenn. My name is Dr. Lisa Gunderson. I'm Gavin Torvik. Well, I'm Jasmine Rajawanda. And ask them the same three questions. Given our current trajectory, where do you think we are headed? What does our collective future hold? If you could design your ideal future, what would it look like? Okay, so what is the most important change that we need to make that would best serve our community? You're listening to Full Circle on CFUV 101.9 FM on the Songhees and Wissanich territories of the Lekwungen and Sinchothan-speaking peoples, commonly known as Victoria. On this episode, we're talking about futurisms. How do the people helping to build our community envision the future, and how does their work inform their view of our evolution? We started My with M. M. Osborne. Osborne. I am the coordinator of the Gender Empowerment Center, previously the Women's Center of UVSS. Given our current trajectory, where do you think we are headed in terms of the future? I feel like in terms of where we're headed, I think it's so important to acknowledge that um, the gender binary that we're really relying on right now is rooted in colonialism. And with that, um, I think that we are really relying on this idea of man and woman as normal and then everything else as abnormal or other. And you really see this on like like medical forms. You know, it's like choose your gender identity and it's man, woman or male, female. And then an other box that sometimes has like a line that you can write your specific identity. So there's this hierarchy of men and woman as normal and everything else as other like quite literally in those forms. So I think there's like this acknowledgement that there are genders outside of this binary idea, but there's still this hierarchy of what is normal and what is not normal. And I, I would really like to see us move past that. I think that people are more so understanding gender as existing on a spectrum, but I think that that still sometimes fails people. Because when you understand it on a spectrum, you still like create that hierarchy of on one side you have man, on one side you have woman, and then there's everything in between that is like not necessarily bad under the spectrum model, but it's not normal either. So I think understanding gender as so much more complex than this spectrum, I think that sometimes people understand gender is on a galaxy, you know, it's sort of existing in this galaxy where it's messy and really like exciting sometimes. And like, you can be creative with gender. And so I hope to see us move more that way. But I think right now I really see us still holding up that hierarchy of men and women as normal and everything else as kind of okay, but still other on that medical form. Artist and performer Lindsay Delaron sees our future trajectory as a process of reframing Canada's history to develop better relationships between Canada and Indigenous people. I'm um, a Ganyakahaga woman from Ganawage, which is in the province of Quebec, just outside of Montreal. That's where I was born and raised uh, for 20 years on reserve, and then I moved to uh, the Kwangan Territory about 12 years ago, and I've been living and working here ever since. And she hopes to see the decolonization of these relationships and institutions be more integrated in the art community. Given our current trajectory, where do you think we are headed? What does our collective future hold? You know, I feel like a lot of, you know, the future um, or what's unfolding, actually, is, you know, these critical conversations around, you know, um, 
how do we coexist? How do we coexist as we've, in the last 10 years, been, you know, processing and, and, and creating discourse and dialogue around reconciliation? You know, that's it. There's a movement forward in terms of dismantling, you know, um, the myth about Canada, you know, and bringing forth, you know, the narratives of residential school survivors and how that's influenced, you know, this movement of reconciliation in the last 10 years. And so, you know, there's been that pressure of, of um, you know, how to implement um you know, indigenous voices and peoples into all organizations and institutions and the call to action, you know, that was created by the TRC, the Truth of Reconciliation Commission of Canada, you know, that was all sort of implemented again into our into our um, worldview. This has been sort of implemented as a as a movement. And so, you know, the 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 continued unfolding of what that looks like in the arts is something that you know, I'm very interested in being part of. Um, like I said, my my real focus is, you know, continuing to push myself as an artist, um, continue to do performance, and then again, you know, push that more into the theater realm. Lindsay sees the future she's building as a path to more Indigenous ways of being and knowledge in the arts world. Paula Hingley also sees large-scale structural changes in our future. I work in tech in Victoria at a company called EchoSec. We are a social media and online data aggregation tool. So we provide a platform that gives access to data for security teams and journalists. Paula predicts more localized education and knowledge sharing systems and a move away from large-scale education and media conglomerates. Where do you think we are headed in terms of the future? We're going to be taking our individual skills and kind of sharing them with a more niche down group of people. So it's going to be instead of, you know, the whole all the students going to one university, it's going to be, you know, 500 people going to this one person who's an expert in this one specific thing because they want to do that one specific thing. And it's going to be a lot more kind of broken up and a lot more, I guess, self regulated and uh, private, I think, to be honest. So it'll be individuals selling their selling their products that, sh- you know, to share their knowledge and their skills. So I'm, I'm imagining that there's going to be a decentralization of where we get our knowledge from and where we where we get our education from. Glenn sees Victoria's commitment to green initiatives as an indicator of a positive future for Victoria. Uh, I'm Glenn. I'm the station manager here at CFUV 101.9 FM. And comparatively, Glenn thinks we'll be much better off than other cities. There's a couple things that I'd mention there. Uh, One, the future in general, I'm not too optimistic about. The future of Victoria in particular, I actually have a little bit more optimism about that. Like, I feel a little bit more positive about Victoria versus the wider future. So as a new Victorian, I'm excited and I'm a little bit more enthused about what the city council is doing to take steps uh, for climate change, which I'm not seeing many other places do. It's stuff like, you know, emphasizing public transit and like hearing about how they've made public transit free for, for under 18 year olds. I'm really happy about that, and I wish more places would do that. So it's like negativity about how other places aren't doing that, but slight positivity that there are actual steps being taken here in Victoria. I think we might be like a little oasis of happiness. And yeah, I think other places are really going to struggle. So I can see us growing. And once we get over like the, the hurdles of introducing a new way of thinking, once it's like sunk in, I think everyone will be positive and I think our city will be a good place to live. Dr. Lisa Gunderson also has a positive vision for Victoria's future. She sees the potential healing for Canada's cultural atomization and aggression. My name is Dr. Lisa Gunderson and I have been a visitor here for 
this is going on year seven. And I do a variety of things, but primarily I have a consulting business. It's called One Love Consulting, and we focus on issues of equity, especially with regard to racialized and minoritized persons. I work at the tribal school in Brentwood Bay, where I do clinical supervision and clinical counseling. By dropping defenses and embracing inclusion, Dr. Gunderson thinks our current trajectory could lead us in the right direction. Realistically, um, I actually believe it's possible, but I feel we're at a critical juncture where we have to make some decisions and choices, and we have to be honest with ourselves and with those that hold power and privilege, that they look at what they see and that they're not afraid of this change that's already happening. Has more immigrants come into the space? Has more brown and black people come into the space that they're like, okay, this is okay. And not feeling like we're losing Canada or whatever that is. Really saying, we're going to do this. We're going to acknowledge our biases. We're going to acknowledge this stuff and actually put in structures that don't perpetuate those systems. If we can do that, using the wisdom of those who've come before us, of our indigenous brothers and sisters who are here and truly listening to them and ways of being and listening to those of us who've come from other places and our ways of being, if people really open up that space, it can happen for us. So I'm going to try my best to do my part in making that a reality. I may not live to see it, but I hope that by beginning to sow the seeds or the seeds have been sown, continuing to water them uh, to do our part. And I hope other people will as well. The critical juncture that Dr. Gunderson mentioned is echoed by Gavin Torvik from the Victoria Tenant Action Group. I'm here to talk about housing and the city of Victoria and community in general, displacement, um, and how the private rental housing market um, shapes what our community will look like going into the future. Gavin thinks that without making changes to affordable housing in Victoria, we're headed for a city that doesn't facilitate community. Um, I think our current trajectory is one of displacement. It's one of uh, pushing people out who can't uh, compete, pushing people out depending on their income. Um, and I think if that continues, we're headed to a future that doesn't have any of the things that really make a community a community. I think we're headed toward um, a place where rising costs and unrestricted uh, housing market um, rent evictions and dem evictions and redevelopment and and this very loose definition of what's affordable versus what's not. Um, I think that's pushing people out. It's pushing out seniors. It's pushing out um, people who wash dishes. It's pushing out food service workers. It's pushing out baristas. It's pushing out um, you know, it's pushing out families um, because people can't afford uh, the amount of space that they need to actually build a life. So the place where we're headed in the future, um, if I'm going to get like just kind of bleak or just sort of looking at the way things are happening now and just draw a straight line, the future that we're looking at is a city um, that doesn't contain any of the things that we actually think about as the living, breathing aspect of a city, people and community and culture. Well, we're already starting to see what that looks like, um, and it's looking like uh, a lot of fear. It's looking like a lot of displacement. It's looking like a lot of downward mobility. Um, it's looking like a lot of people having, say, their first experience of homelessness over the age of 55. Um, because, you know, we, when you have people who are living, say, you're, you're in retirement age, um, we've got a lot of people now who are coming into that retirement age um, where you're on a fixed income and your income's not going up. Or you're somebody who is trying to start a family and you want to, you've got a baby and you've got a dog and you say you need space, you need access to amenities, you need to be able to um, be fairly central in the city and you want to be able to provide certain things for your child, like being able to go to the same school for consecutive grades. Um, and so if we just continue the way things are going, um, we're pushing out everybody from food service workers and artists to seniors to families. And I don't know what, like, what is a city without any of those things? It sounds pretty just like gutted to me. 
But there are community planners who are working to make sure we still have all these things in our future. And we asked one of them to weigh in on what the future holds. All right. Thank you. Okay. Um, well, I'm Jasmindra Jawanda. I was uh, born here in Victoria. And uh, it's great to come back. Um, and I'm settling here in my homegrown hometown. I'm very excited to be here and to add to the amazing work and the layers um, that's already been done in the city. Um, so I'm excited as an urban community and cultural planner uh, to be back and to settle here in Victoria. And when she's thinking about our current trajectory, Jasmindra thinks about ways we can meaningfully build community and drive innovative change. As a community planner, um, I smile because the reason I went to, to pursue my master's in planning was community planning, and it was the word community. So as a planner, I'm very much driven from that word. Um, and uh, I like to think that I... I carry the vision of a community planner, um, not just professionally, but also personally in my life. So when I look at the city of Victoria, for example, moving back, which is why we're here to talk about the future in our community here, um, I left many years ago and I would come and visit. I've been here now for five years and uh, I've witnessed some, witnessed some incredible waves of um, energy, of passions, of drive, of commitment, um, whether that's addressing homelessness or poverty alleviation um, or respect for refugees, newcomers and immigrants, the city of Victoria and the 13 CRD municipalities um, are growing in so many ways. We're growing in terms of population base. People want to come here. Um, why do they want to come here? Well, what is their future? So I really feel as a community planner, um, great work is being done and, and um, there's always more work to be done in community. Um, and we often think of how do we define the word community? So I, I remember when I was pursuing my master's, um, I met a PhD student from India and he was uh, doing his PhD on community planning. And I was in his office one day and he said to me, we we're talking about community, and he goes, you know, it's interesting, Jasmine and he said, because in India we don't really actually need to even deem the term or we don't even really necessarily talk about the term. And so I was listening to him, uh, much younger in those days, and of course, sage advice and listening. And then he said to me, he goes, do you know why? And I said, no. And he said, because we live community. And in that moment, it was one of those paradigm shifts for me because absolutely, because he went on to say in a street in New Delhi in India, you could be a Sufi family living next to a Christian family, living next to a Muslim family, living next to a Sikh family, all on one street, all encapsulating a neighborhood, a very vibrant neighborhood. So I, I take some of the global stories and I've had the opportunity to travel and live in other places and where community may not be necessarily defined the way that we in the West want to define community, because we seek it. But other peoples in other areas, they're living it. And so I guess the question for me with you is, how do we live community in our future? Um, I really see it, and I'm passionate about uh, not just community planning at the municipal level, which is exactly what we need, because it guides the development for us, but we also need to bring in our NGOs, our nonprofits, into the political voice. We have to bring in academia into the political voice. We have to bring elders, seniors, we have to bring youth into it. Of course, First Nations peoples, as well as refugees, immigrants. So for me, as a community planner, um, I really see the focus on how do we address pertinent issues um, that are being addressed but could be addressed through creative change. And that's what excites me as a planner, is the creative change that we can do together on the future of our 13 CRD municipalities. Whether or not people are satisfied with where we're headed as a community, everyone has an ideal future. M's perfect future involves dismantling the gender binary and improving education to expand the public's view of gender. Um, for me, I feel like... Um, it would be starting with that recognition of the gender binary as being rooted in 
colonialism and white supremacy and all of these oppressive structures, ableism, transphobia, um, cisnormativity. Um, like there are so many oppressive structures that work to uphold the gender binary. And so like getting rid of all that, moving beyond that, um, understanding gender as complex and nuanced and as existing in a galaxy or any of these other like analogies or metaphors that we could use to understand how it's messy and not as easy. You know, I feel like in our society, we often want to categorize things. So it's really simple to understand. But I think in an ideal future, we would get away from this need to categorize things and make things easy and tangible to sort of like grasp and rather embrace its messiness and the fact that gender and language even changes and I think that a lot of people talk about um, the future as fluid. When we're talking about gender, that's probably something that you've heard. There's t-shirts that say the future is fluid or the future is non-binary. And I love that idea. But I think that with that, there also needs to be an acknowledgement that even if we get away from this upholding of men and women as normal and everything else is other, a lot of people really identify with the um, like language or identities of men and or women. And I think that that's great. Like if you identify as a woman, like power to you, that's so rad. It's not necessarily an identity that serves me right now. Maybe it will in the future, but that's not where I'm at right now. Um, but yeah, I think in understanding the future is fluid. I understand the future as also including those identities of men and women that we've understood for quite a long time, but also um, like prioritizing the the identities of gender nonconforming folks, non-binary folks, trans folks. Um, I also think that um, getting away from like gendering body parts and gendering um, behaviors and language and, you know, the ways that people talk and act and dress, that is such an important thing. And that I think comes along with embracing that messiness and creativity of gender. And then also in understanding, in understanding the future as fluid, I understand that as an acknowledgement that um, gender changes over time in that our identities can adapt as we grow older and understand ourselves better and um, your pronouns can change. And my ideal future would be a place where we're checking in with our friends all the time and like asking their pronouns and be like, hey, like, are you still using these pronouns or like, do you have new pronouns? Um, and what are those? And I would be so happy to use those. And getting to a place where we're normalizing that we're normalizing asking people's pronouns and sharing our pronouns with people and um yeah like having our identities adapt over time that would be i think like an ideal future for me but again it looks so different for everyone and i love talking to people about this because i love hearing what would serve other people because what would serve me would not necessarily serve the people around me and i think that that's a really interesting thing about gender that everyone conceptualizes it in such a different way and I think that that's so emblematic of the messiness of it which is like both frustrating but also like an exciting place to sit in I think I see a lot of what I hope for in the future in like communities of young people um, and like I in the communities that I work in, like people who are um, quite invested in anti-oppression and social justice, I think that we are moving forward in um, like asking people's pronouns and having your pronouns never be assumed and not assuming someone's gender based on the way that they act, look, dress, all of those things. I think that young people are so cool, like especially like kids. So I do research on sex education and I talk to a lot of teachers about sex education and I've done like research on, on like curriculums, um, sex ed curriculums all across Canada. And we are like putting this acknowledgement of gender identity as complex into those curriculums. And so I think growing up with that mindset that gender is complex can change over time. There are more identities than men and women. I think, I hope at least that 
in with this current trajectory, we're going to move forward to that future where it's just a normal thing. I think for older folks, it's sometimes harder to understand um, and to change your language because I totally get like you grow up understanding one thing is so simple you know like gender was men and women and then sometimes you had trans people um and so I I feel like as we go through time and we have different generations coming of age hopefully we'll get to that place where it's just a normalized thing that gender is messy and yeah. cool an ideal future for Lindsay Delarond looks like autonomous Indigenous leadership in the arts and across cultural learning. Her ideal future is built with Indigenous worldviews that inform how an arts community could function. You know, I think the, the potential of, of having an Indigenous performative arts centre is something that I would really love to see here in Victoria. You know, there's a gap there, and that's something that I've been able to really look um, but been able to see along with others, you know, there was a lot of questions because one thing that we had implemented in Supernova excuse me, was uh, Q&A after the show and some of the audience would stay back and then, you know, it's been an opportunity to ask more questions or, you know, to give any feedback and there was a lot of like, what's next? What's next? What What's going to happen? Like, you know, this is so amazing. What's going to happen? And so I think, you know, again, that investigation uh, and, and maybe it's about commitment and dedication and finding, you know, that core group of people to really start fostering what, um, you know, what does Indigenous performance look like in our city? Uh, we have to continue developing our own practice and our own protocol, and so that's something that, you know, we're we're coming together um, as a collective of Indigenous voices. Um, and I'm just only one amongst, you know, a group of many, and so uh, it's it's really uh, exciting um, to come together and start to flesh out these questions and and work through them together, and so. Um, the future for us looks like, you know, putting in more grants to help, you know, foster more of this research component uh, that will help with the creation production in the future. Uh, but the long-term vision, you know, and they happen in small increments, we, we definitely want to see an Indigenous theatre company, Indigenous an actual stage space, Indigenous space that we can sort of harbour you know, our ideas and nurture ideas and create residencies and programs. And so, and I think it'd be really an interesting initiative for Victoria uh, to, you know, be involved in um, for that cross-learning, you know, cross-cultural learning and sharing uh, has a lot of potential for that. You know, our future as Indigenous voices, we want to have our own Indigenous theatre space, our own performative arts centre you know, where we could start to, you know, uh, showcase and express and, you know, be in our artistic practice, you know, with the infrastructure all built from Indigenous worldview and Indigenous vision and voices. And so that's the future that I am really excited to be part of. Paula Hingley's ideal future also involves nurturing her passions. She'd like to see more specialization in the workforce so that people could pursue a job that motivates them. If I could design my ideal future, it would look like everybody doing what they're very good at and what they love to do. I mean, I think I think I would imagine people working hard at the thing that that really drives them and understanding that what you do or what I do is valuable to somebody else. So you should be able to, I think in the ideal future, we will be able to share that knowledge and the skills that we have and make a living from it. And it, it'll just be a very fulfilling transactional thing, you know, instead of us having to go to some, some job that we don't love, we're going to work really hard, but we're going to be doing the thing that really, really nurtures us and really, feeds us, I guess, and we'll, we'll all be better off for it. Glenn wants more public space for Victoria to make space for community that isn't based on promoting capitalism. I think more 
communal sort of spaces um, in general. And like you can think about communal spaces in terms of like living arrangements, but also in terms of like driving. Like I think less individual cars would be really helpful, less like, oh, this is one building that's designated for this one company. I think like uh, one really interesting thing that I, I hope we see more of are like community or cultural hubs. Like a lot of different organizations can share a space and like connect with one another. Um, and I think seeing more of those happen here, because they already do kind of exist here. Uh, seeing more of those in the next few years or in the future would be really cool. For Dr. Gunderson, an ideal future means challenging white supremacist structures to make this community a safer place for black and brown people. Ideally, I see Victoria being a place that is increasingly more and more diverse in terms of Black-Brown diversity and a space where our children and ourselves can bring our full selves into work and into school, where we don't have to ask the question of, are you going to get to read a Black author? You know, will you have a Black teacher in your 22 years of education if you decide to go to university? Um can I go into my workspace and play my music and eat my food and not have, you know, some microaggression happen because of that? Gavin holds a vision of the future where adequate shelter is abundant and accessible to everyone in the community. He wants to see the economic and legal barriers to affordable housing be removed. If you could design your ideal future, what would it look like? Well, I think um, my ideal future just speaking broadly, is is one where people are able to really flourish um, and that people are enabled and supported um, by the community and by society at large so that they can flourish as human beings and we can live in this, in stronger, better, richer communities. Um, I don't just mean richer financially. I mean like richer culturally. Um, I think it, dealing with structural issues like housing issues um, what you're looking at is like, what are the structural barriers that just keep people in survival mode, that keep people having to having to fight and struggle and and scrounge and fight to get by instead of being able to uh, really be productive and, and engaged members of the community. I mean, we're a settler colonial, colonialist state. Uh, so and in, in what we call uh, colonially Greater Victoria um, encompasses uh, unceded indigenous territory. It's unsurrendered. There's no treaty here. Um, we're in an active colonial occupation. And um, I think when we actually want to think seriously and talk seriously about decolonization, we need to be looking at the private property system, which was imposed uh, through the colonial order and through the violent force of colonial settlement. In her ideal future, Jasmindra wants to see more representation and diversity in policymaking to create more opportunities for marginalized people. So I, I, the future I would like to envision would be, we talk about the word inclusivity, but I think we should also be um, very careful when we talk about the, the word inclusivity, because if we put on events or forums or presentations, we also have to be very mindful are we being exclusive while we promote inclusivity? And that being said, um, what I would like to see is have representation in positions of policy making, whether that's in our municipalities, whether that's in provincial government, whether that's in federal government. Um, I really feel, as I'm focusing on cultural planning these days, on multiculturalism in particular, I look around and I, I'm very observant of who's not at the policy table, um, who's not participating, and I would like to see more culturally diverse representation in staff, in policy-making positions, um, opening up positions for First Nations peoples, opening up positions for immigrants, refugees, newcomers, culturally diverse peoples that have been here for many generations. Um, we have areas that we still will need to go forward in to address social justice, to address discrimination, to address racism. And these are all um, very real lived experiences from many of our community members here in the 13 municipalities. 
So going forward, I really feel where some of the greatest change that can take place in our communities is by ensuring that there is representation in positions of policy making. If we're talking about a First Nations project, who's sitting there and deciding who are the decision makers? Do you have representation and not just one or two persons? In my opinion, the majority of representation, if we're talking about a First Nations project, should be steered, directed, visioned by First Nations people, just like if we're talking about a multicultural project. I would like to feel and I would like to think that people are invited to the table of culturally diverse backgrounds. Um, and that's where the greatest learning is going to take place by our communities building bridges for the others to walk on and over and vice versa. And for me, I'm most passionate right now in the 13 CRD municipalities is about creating bridges and for us all of us to walk over, but to create those opportunities that haven't necessarily maybe been created for others. The thing standing between our ideal future and the future we're hurtling towards is change. For M, it's important to change the outdated perspectives of gender and to embrace the vastness of identities so we can have a community where non-binary and trans folks are safe and valued. What do you think is the most powerful change we need to make that would best serve our community? Number one really is that recognition of the gender binary as being rooted in colonialism and moving away from that. I think that would create so many, um, like it would create a better understanding of gender um, because I think that it's really hard to understand identities outside of men and women when you're when that binary is so normalized in your mind and it's just like so ingrained in you so yeah I think getting away from that binary I think um another thing is yeah like understanding the fluidity of gender and also getting away from biological essentialism I think like understanding sex and gender as different inherently different things is so hard for some people to get. Um, but once you understand gender as completely social and separate from biological sex, I think that that would serve a lot of people. Lindsay wants to see change in the way our relationships manifest because she sees that as the best way to be successful in building a better world. What do you think is the most important change we need to make to best serve our community? Commitment. You know, I think it's really important to find or to create relationships. I think relationships, um, you know, that are binded by a shared vision, respect, um, you know, able to move through conflict in a good way, being able to respect differences and similarities, you know, in relationships and keeping them healthy, you know, I think is that the whole root of any successful organization or any successful movement or anything successful, you know, um, in terms of manifesting big ideas, uh, you know, and expansion, it has to come from that place of respect. And so I think that's fundamental that we have to keep really nurturing and fostering that and having, you know, um, our relationships in, in, in the forefront of everything that we do as the most important, having good relationships. Paula thinks making changes to the ways knowledge and talent can be shared and increased public spaces are the best way to help people live more authentic and fulfilling lives. So something that I'm noticing a lot and I'm feeling a lot is that we're all really diving into our laptops so much more all, all the time. And I think that the best way that the community can kind of enrich our, you know, social and health, uh, social and personal well-being is to encourage, I guess, kind of dynamic spaces to work in and to kind of encourage socializing and getting our heads out of the laptops a little bit. I've talked to a lot of people who do kind of public art uh, installations and how that can really help bring people together and connect over just interesting, beautified spaces that are publicly accessible. 
And I can just imagine, you know, working in a coffee shop where there's a, a cool spot just outside where there's people hanging out and chatting. And I, I think that that's probably the best thing that the community can do. Create more public space that's that in, encourages socializing and connection. Glenn thinks specific climate actions need to be implemented and that the community needs to be ready to invest in a better future by starting to pay for it now. What do you think is the most important change we need to make that would best serve our community? So there's two ways of of approaching that. One is uh, in terms of like climate actions, I think I've been talking a lot about public transit, I know, but I think getting rid of just like single user or single family cars on the road is a major step. Um, But beyond that, it's not just like the cars that are causing environmental issues, it's stuff like single use plastics. And like, I don't know if many people do this. I know my family does, but like tote bags themselves do have a cost associated with them. And I don't think many people are aware of that. It's like, oh, I have a tote bag. I'm okay now. Um, But then you forget your tote bag, you get another tote bag. So it's like, it's equivalent to just stockpiling garbage bags again except this time it's going to take longer for them to degrade so i think those kind of carbon footprint related changes need to happen and then i also think that uh, related to that like everyone's worried about oh how are we going to pay for all of these environmental programs Um, everyone's afraid of like paying more in taxes even though eventually they'll reap the benefits of that so that's one thing that i i think is a mindset change is people need to be okay with paying for this better future, instead of just demanding a better future and not being happy when your taxes go up. Because I'm happy to pay my taxes, and I'm happy if they rise if I know that, okay, I pay 10, 10 cents more per year or per month. That's fine, because it means like some kid down the road doesn't need to worry about having to get a car when he turns 16 so he can go to work. And then, you know, pumping gas into Because he probably can't afford a good car. It'll probably be a, a beater, which is just going to spew gas and cause all sorts of problems. So... Those are the two things I think need to happen. Dr. Gunderson wants to see more representation and respect for Black culture in Victoria. And instead, people not only not only respect our culture, but they don't appropriate it, right? They appreciate it without appropriating it. And everybody realizes that we're not competing culturally, that all of our cultures are equitable. And that's what makes this place beautiful. That's it's the it's the way how nature is nature is fully diverse. And that's how we're supposed to be, but in an equitable way. So that's what I'd love to see that when we look at the legislature, there is a black MLA in it. Maybe even two or three. That would be great. Um, yeah, I, I. That's. I would love to see. I would love to see that. And you know, some gospel concerts and yeah. And because housing accessibility is imperative to Gavin's ideal future, large-scale structural changes need to happen to make sure the community's needs are met. I think there's a few things. I think if we're thinking about housing, um, there are immediate structural things that we can do to redirect our community away from one where private uh, private capital and the private housing market is just gobbling people up and spitting them out onto the street. Um, I think one of the key things that we can do right now is vacancy control. Um, And right now, uh, the Victoria Tenant Action Group, we're in the early stages of trying to coordinate with the Vancouver Tenants Union, New Westminster Tenants Union, Kelowna, and so on, um, to coordinate on a province-wide campaign for vacancy control. So that would mean uh, that your landlord cannot raise the rent or a landlord cannot raise the rent between tenancies by whatever the market will bear. There would be the same provincially mandated rent increase even when the place is empty as there is when there's an existing tenant in there. So we can do things immediately or more or less immediately to sort of slow down rising costs and try to stabilize the market. Um, And then I think uh, more long-term, wider availability of nonprofit uh, and non-market housing options, uh, co-ops and social housing. We can look at things like Vienna, Austria, where 60% of people in the city of Vienna live in housing owned by the city. Um, 
we can look to models like that. We can look to New Westminster, um, where they're using business licensing, uh, revocable business licenses, and a structure of fines um, in order to be able to actually enforce um, local bylaws and and actually put a stop to chronic renovictors, people who are displacing, uh, developers who are displacing hundreds of people from apartment buildings can now be held to account with concrete things. Um, but I think the the most important thing is is looking at the kinds of housing we want to live in um, and look at the kind of community we want to live in and how we want to think about housing. And I think the key thing is uh, broader availability of non-market options and an approach to housing as a human right. Anything else? Um, I think that uh, housing is one of those things that is absolutely central to community and what your community looks like and how you approach housing and how you structure housing materially in your community is going to have an effect on what your community looks like in the future. And an unrestricted uh, housing market where costs go up uh, pushes people out and it pushes people into homelessness and it pushes people into despair. And it's not just like, it's not just that this is like, it's people who are on the verge of homelessness, although that's important too. It's also people who are maybe doing okay for themselves or maybe getting by, but they're looking at one little change. They're looking at, you know, if I get evicted and I have to move, like it's only downward mobility, or maybe I have to look at living in another city, or maybe I have to look at uprooting myself from, you know, my whole life and my connections here. And I think it's, it's, easy with housing to feel like it's just this like market game and this question of sort of balancing things on the spreadsheet of how much housing do we have and what's the vacancy rate but there's a real lived human impact to this and it has an immediate impact on the community and what it looks like and it's going to have an impact on what the community looks like going forward. Jasmindra sees collective organizing and supporting each other as the most effective way to make great change. It's interesting because we can have these high-level workshops and we can invite politicians, which we absolutely need. Um, and that's often at the high level. I'm really fascinated and I'm really interested and passionate about neighborhood planning. Because, yes, we have land use planning that dictates the development on the land. We have social planning that addresses homelessness and uh, poverty alleviation. We have community planning with projects. We have cultural planning um, as well. But I really feel to address these overarching and heavy topics as well, I think what we can be doing more of is actually going into the neighborhoods. And that maybe is a segue coming back full circle to the comment about India, how they live community. So I've been deeply reflecting on this and I'm rereading Jane Jacobs, who's one of our leading planners in Canada, who introduced walkable cities, neighborhood planning. And so I'm really looking at this city through neighborhoods. And I feel we need to have conversations with our neighbors. I really feel it's at the grassroots level. So if a Syrian family arrives on your street, how do we welcome them? And that's just one example. There's many other examples. So I feel the greatest change can be perhaps directed at neighborhood level planning. And that's where I want to focus my planning here, is let's talk to our neighbors. There's a human library project that goes around the world, originated out of Scandinavia. We've done it once, I believe, at UVic many years ago. I feel as a planner, let's bring back something like that, a human library where Kemi can be sitting across a person that she has no idea of what their life is. And we create a human library, neighborhood to neighborhood. Let's start those discussions. And that's where I'm focusing right now is neighborhood planning. And then get to the higher level. But let's start where we need to start with the people, by the people, for the people. When we work professionally, I really feel that we can also use the word passion. And uh, we have passionate people, passionate planners, <laughs> Passionate community activists is such an outstanding place to live, to breathe, to work, to play, to unpack. But let's do it all together, mindfully um, and compassionately. And let's raise each other up. There's a great uh, black 
feminist term, an Afro-American feminist term from the 60s, um, and Angela Davis often talks about it, lifting up. Um, in my early 20s, um, I was introduced to those words as well, and I'm a strong believer many years later. We are here to lift each other up. And when we lift each other up, that's where the greatest change will happen in our cities. Visioning the future is what allows us to help create it. And that's why it's so important to imagine possible futures. This episode of Full Circle was produced by Kemi Craig with help from Elizabeth Davalis, Chris Rajala, and Serena Bendar. Our executive producer is Mary Decker. Thank you to all of our guests on this episode. Jasminder Jawanda, Glenn S., Gavin Torvik, M. Osborne, Lindsay Delaron, Paula Hingley, and Dr. Lisa Gunderson. This program would not be possible without the generous support of the Community Radio Fund of Canada. If you like this episode, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcasts. If you like this episode, you might also like Play on Words experimental episode about the concept of time called The Ultimate Timekeeper. Hey, Give me your ear. Let's uh, let's pull back the curtain for a minute and check out behind the scenes of CFUV's podcasts. Hi, this is Serena with CFUV 101.9 FM. I just wanted to share with you how wonderful a time I've had this past year being a volunteer working on CFUV's Taking Up Space podcast. Um, I find that uh, narrative... Uh, podcasts are such a great space for sharing the voices of marginalized folks and communities. Um, In particular, working on the Hormone Monster podcast was such an amazing experience. And not only did I get to share some really enthralling and eye-opening information with you all, um, I also learned quite a bit about my own body and, you know, the ways that uh, our hormones really just play around with... uh, how we interact with the world. Uh, That episode was so eye-opening and so validating for me, especially as a transgender woman. Um, Beyond that, um, yeah, I just found that working on these podcasts was such a really cool experience. Um, I learned so many skills that I'm able to now apply into my own artistic practice. Um, And yeah, I really can't really can't say enough about how great of an experience it's been. Um, If you're interested at all in volunteering, I would highly recommend uh, getting in touch with the folks here at CPV. Thanks.